Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, and thank you for joining us. My name is Connie Vogelman, and I'm a grad student at Yale and a research assistant with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm here with Josh Galperin, the Associate Director of the Center and a clinical lecturer at the Yale Law School. Today's topic is invasive species, which is an environmental issue that's often overlooked, but that's a significant and growing problem in the United States. More specifically, we'll be discussing the up-and-coming invasive war movement, in which environmentalists actually eat invasive species with the goal of reducing the species numbers and impacts on the environment. Last spring, Josh co-authored an article on the invasive species movement that will soon be published in the American Bar Association's Journal on National Resources and the Environment. Over the summer, uh, Josh and I have continued the research on the invasive war movement, and today we'll be talking a little bit about that movement. I'll be asking Josh a few questions about invasive species and about the invasive war movement, and hopefully we can shed a little bit of light on the issue. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this this important issue with us today. Yeah, thank you, Connie. So, first of all, um, because people might not know, can you give us a quick definition of invasive species? What uh, what exactly are they, and how do they cause problems? Yes, I will try, and I'll and I'll start by prefacing it uh, with the fact that I am a lawyer, not an ecologist, so I don't want to uh, overstep my bounds too much. But uh, essentially, invasive species are species that have been transported out of their na- native habitats by humans and moved into a, a new habitat. So um, it's a species, for instance, from, uh, from Japan, like Japanese knotweed, that has been moved by human transport into uh, the eastern United States. But there's, there's two other important factors. So the first factor is that it's not just here, but it's naturalized, which means that the population has really established itself and it's now thriving without human cultivation. So knotweed, again, is an example. Uh, it's here, and it's, and it's growing on our riverbanks uh, and, and in our forests, and it's happening without humans helping it at this point. Humans brought it here but aren't helping it survive. Um, many uh, agriculture crops, for instance, are brought here by humans, but they don't survive in the wild without human help. So they, they don't count as invasive species. Um, and the second factor is one that really isn't an ecological definition. It's more of a, a, a governmental definition. But... Um, the, the federal definition generally requires that invasive species not only meet the human transported and naturalized elements, but also that invasive species cause some kind of harm, typically economic or um, ecological harm. Okay. Well, that, that helps clarify a lot of things um, on my end, at least. Um, but, you know, one thing that I was sort of wondering about is, you know, we hear a lot about climate change, deforestation, pollution, and a lot of other environmental issues. And, you know, I made it three years into a graduate program without hearing much about invasive species. So are they a problem in the country? Yeah, they are. They're, they're a major problem. And you're right, they're not um, nearly as commonly thought about as other problems. Uh, they are basically a form of, of uh, ecosystem pollution, but we don't think of them that way because they are plants. They look a lot like the way the ecosystem normally looks, um, it's certainly from an untrained eye. So they, they have a number of different impacts, and of course, different species, different invasive species have different types of impacts. Um, but what they tend to do is come into an ecosystem and disrupt the normal, and this is a, a word that I should be careful using, and again, because I'm not an ecologist, I want to I tread lightly, but they disrupt the normal ecosystem processes. So you're bringing something in 
from the outside into an ecosystem that's fairly well uh, fit together over the course of evolution. Now, there, there's of course some some theory in ecology about um, the role of sort of um, of ecosystem dynamics versus uh, static ecosystems. So, um, you know, the idea of a uh, uh, sort of the top level forest is the perfect type of ecosystem and, a, and an old field is a bad ecosystem. And, and that sort of um, divergence, that sort of dichotomy is really, um, has really been pushed aside in, in ecology. So I don't want to give this um, impression that when I'm talking about invasive species disrupting an ecosystem, I'm talking about them uh, changing it from its prime condition to some, some weakened theoretical condition. But what I mean is that humans are adding something to the ecosystem just as if they were adding water pollution or air pollution or if they were cutting down the trees or if they were, uh, you know, killing too many of the animals. They're adding something to the ecosystem that hasn't been there historically. So the dynamics of the ecosystem change. Um, and, and how an individual values those, those dynamics is different from individual to individual. But, for instance, they can lower biodiversity. Uh, some people maybe don't think that's a problem, but a lot of people do. They can change uh, other natural regimes like fire regimes or nutrient cycling. So there's all kinds of things that they can do to the ecosystem that we often see as negative. And for those who, who say, well, that's a very subjective way of looking at it, well, it, it can be subjective. But if you identify the ecosystem processes that you are concerned about protecting uh, and that shouldn't be too hard to do, we can identify those and then clearly tick off uh, which in invasive species are affecting which uh, patterns in, in different ecosystems. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that ex explanation. Um, so, you know, with that, with that in mind, um, it, it seems like it's, you know, they're obviously a, a difficult problem to handle just because there's so many diverse, um, you know, impacts in different ecosystems. So um, what, what about some of the regulatory measures that are in place in the U.S.? Have they, do we have anything and have they been successful? Depending on how you look at it, there's a lot of regulatory measures, and almost no matter how you look at it, they have not been successful. So we have regulatory measures that uh, that go across all the states. You know, every state has its own um, own set of regulations or lack of regulations, and then we have a, a few pieces of federal regulation. So um, just to talk generally about it, at the federal level, the the Lacey Act is uh, is one of the prime uh, regulatory measures, and the Lacey Act was passed in I think 1900, and and the purpose of the Lacey Act uh, is a few things, but it, it allows the federal government to enforce state wildlife and plant laws and regulations. So if you have uh, certain regulations, let's say here in Connecticut, that prohibit the movement of, uh, say, um, hogweed, a giant hogweed, which is a problem in Connecticut, um, and I should just stop and say hogweed's interesting. It's relatively new to Connecticut. It's a massive-looking uh, plant with these white, um, white flowers, and the sap from this plant can uh, severely blister and burn skin. So here's an invasive species that uh, I don't know a lot about its ecosystem impacts, but its, but its human health impacts and human well-being impacts are significant. So for those who aren't worried about the environment, there's other reasons to worry about invasive species too. Uh, and I'll get to some others hopefully later. But So in Connecticut, if it's illegal to um, move, transport hogweed, uh, the federal government through the Lacey Act actually has authority to enforce that if it's, if it's not being done properly, for instance, or done at all at the state level. The Lacey Act also creates um, what's called a dirty list or, or a blacklist or a prohibited list. So these are certain plants that are either specifically, well, let me just stop and say that are specifically listed in the Lacey Act, plants and animals, that are listed and, and this um, act says you cannot transport them, you cannot import them, you cannot possess them. They are invasive species. 
and and then the act also authorizes uh, the federal government to to add to that dirty list, so to create additional plants and animals that cannot be transported, possessed, etc. Now, um, one of the problems with this act, and one of the reasons that I say it's not effective, is because once you know that something's bad, once you add it to the dirty list, it's too late. You know, if we if we know that hogweed is a problem, or we know that wild boar are a problem, or we know that Asian carp are a problem, and and by the way, hogweed and uh, and wild boar are not on the listed under the Lacey Act. Um, carp, some carp are listed under the Lacey Act. So here are some species that are listed, but they're listed once they've already become a problem. So that doesn't do us a whole lot of good. It can help the spread of these species by preventing people from moving them from place to place. But uh, it, for instance, it can it prohibits somebody taking a carp and moving it from somewhere in the uh, in the Mississippi River up into the Great Lakes. That's good, but it's not that great. And what we really need to do is transition from this um, retroactive sort of management type of regulation to a, a more prospective preventative regulation. And, and that's difficult. And, um, and I'll be frank and say that I'm sort of early in my research and understanding of all the ins and outs of invasive species and the proposals that are out there. But, um, but I think that's the direction we need to head in because currently these preventative, uh, I'm sorry, these management acts don't really work uh, for prevention. Okay. Yeah, I think I remember hearing about something like that. I mean, don't don't quote me at all on the numbers, but I remember no, you're, hearing you're on the that, radio, so you're quoted. Oh dear. <laughs> um, but I think a very very small number of car- cargo ships in the U.S. are inspected at the at the ports. You know, when they're coming into the United States, and something like a quarter of them have invasive species on board. But when you're only inspecting, you know, a very small fraction of that, you sort of wonder what else is is getting through. Yeah, that's exactly right. So where we do have preventative measures, they are. Um, they are limited in scope, whether because of the sort of the actual legal regulatory scope or because of the capacity to carry them out to fulfill the requirements. Right. So you know, one, one so also you know, one other track. If if the regulations aren't aren't being successful, um, you know, one thing that I mentioned a few minutes ago was this invasive boar movement. You know, people who intentionally eat invasive species with the goal of controlling their numbers. Um, how did you first hear about the movement, and what made you interested in it? Well, uh, I'll answer that in two parts. So I, I won't say this is the first time I heard about the movement, but I the first time I ate invasive species, at least knowing about it, was um, when I was living in Vermont and, and my wife was working for the Nature Conservancy up there. And one of the things she was working on was managing, uh, managing the properties that they maintained, keeping them in, in a good ecological state. And to do that, she was spending a lot of time removing garlic mustard from some of their um, so, some of their lowland uh, preserves, garlic mustard is a is a serious problematic invasive species in in Vermont and elsewhere, um, and she would get huge garbage full bags uh, garbage bags full of it. And as it happens, garlic mustard also it's edible. It tastes good. You can eat the plant and it, and sort of mix it up with some olive oil, and it tastes a lot like pesto. So um, that was the first time that I had an experience uh, eating invasive species. I did not know at the time that there was a, a movement afoot. Um, my wife, as I alluded to, worked for the Nature Conservancy. She has since be- become an ecologist. Uh, uh, more officially, she's earning her doctorate in that, and she's been studying invasive species. 
So she's the one who introduced me to this. Uh, and then when we moved to New Haven, I learned about Mia's Sushi, which is a popular restaurant in town. And one of its claims to fame is that it has an invasive species menu and serves a number of invasive species. So the chef and owner there, Bun Lai, is, is, making, is, is part of this effort to make this push to uh, encourage people to eat invasive species. I, I think he and others in this movement recognize what, what you and I are talking about, recognize that the, um, the regulations that exist haven't been working. And they're looking for a more creative way to solve this problem. And their creative way is to say, well, we've eaten other species to extinction or to the brink of extinction. Buffalo, for instance, uh, I, I think um, certain types of tuna. And and if we've done it before, why can't we do it again? So that's sort of the premise of, of the Eating Invaders movement. And, uh, and it's gained a lot of attention because of that. Okay. So it sounds like, I mean, you mentioned the garlic, garlic mustard weed and... Um... You know, obviously, there's there's a few others. You mentioned, you know, the carp earlier. Um, but a lot of the invasive species that people think of when they think of invasive species, if they think of them, um, are things like insects. You know, you hear a lot about the emerald ash borer or the Asian longhorn beetle. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't really want to eat those. Um, so what are some of the other invasive species that people people commonly eat? Yeah, that's good. So in addition to garlic mustard, and I'm not frankly sure how common that is, some of the really common ones are, um, are carp, the Asian carp that I mentioned earlier that live up sort of in the, in the Great Lakes Basin and, and down the Mississippi River. Um, Asian carp, uh, wild boar, um, these, are two, these are two obvious ones because they're fish and they're, and they're pork. So they're the kind of things that we're already comfortable eating. And for that reason, it's really a lot easier to convince people to eat them. Uh, interestingly, wild uh, Asian carp hasn't been nearly as popular because people hear carp, they don't think it's a very attractive sounding uh, food. We, we eat other things. We eat tuna. We eat sea bass. We eat flounder. But carp just isn't really on our menus normally. So there's actually a movement afoot to not just, not just the Eating Invaders movement, but a subset of the Eating Invaders movement that wants to change the name of some of these invasive, invasive species, like the carp, to make it sound uh, a little more attractive and, to people to eat. So, um, so the carp and the boar, the garlic mustard, rhubarb, uh, I'm sorry, not rhubarb, not weed, which tastes a little bit like rhubarb and can be used like rhubarb, is, is one of the more popular plants. Okay. Yeah, well, I, and I know, too, that the Asian carp is actually a bit of a, nom- a misnomer in the sense that they're not even carp, um, that people think that carp are these bottom feeders and they're are, you know, horrible tasting. Um, but I think the Asian carp actually aren't even in the carp family officially. They've just been called that, and so they actually supposedly taste quite good. Well, And, and it's also three separate species of uh, – whether, whether or not it's carp, I actually don't know, but it's, it's three separate species. It's not one kind of fish, so yet another uh, misnomer. Yeah, definitely. So has the invasive war uh, movement seen success? I mean, has it either increased public awareness of these issues or, you know, decreased the numbers of some of these species? Well, yes, it has definitely increased awareness. I mentioned Bun Lai uh, from, from Miyasushi, and he has done a great job. He recently had an article that he published in um, Scientific American discussing this very issue. Um, another person who's, who's been talking a lot about this and getting a lot of attention is a, a fellow named Jackson Landers, who just had an article um, – I, I believe it was an opinion piece in the New York Times this past week, uh, not so much about invasive species, but uh, about his, his efforts. Where he, he hunts invasive species, and he writes about that. And in a recent effort, he was bitten by a black widow spider, and he wrote about that. But he, he has published many articles, including a book on eating invasive, hunting and eating invasive species. The New York Times has been publishing a surprising number of articles about this lately. Uh, there's a website, eattheinvaders.org. So um, it's, it's an interesting uh, sort of 
quirky issue that people are definitely paying attention to because you know food issues are, are popular right now and environmental issues are an important thing to take care of. And there's been a few really um, charismatic, interesting types of people. I mean, you've got a hunter on the one hand, sort of an adventurer hunter talking about it. And on the other hand, you've got a, you know, a, a, a chef from an Ivy League town who's putting this stuff on the plates of, of uh, a lot of different people. So it's, it's a diverse and charismatic crowd, and it's definitely getting a lot of attention. Now, to your second question, has it been successful in reducing the numbers of invasive species? As far as I can tell, the answer to that question is, is no, is distinctly no. Now, I, I say that, again, with a caveat that it's not as if a lot of scientific research has been done on this point, but, um, but there's no evidence yet that it's been very successful. And there are a number of reasons that it seems like it probably won't be successful. Okay. Well, so that's, I mean, that's sort of, you know, obviously a bit of a mixed message, but it's nice to know that the awareness is definitely um, increasing. Um, and for those of you in the New Haven area, I would definitely re- recommend checking out Mia's. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, but getting back to the issue at hand, um, is there any way that the invasive worm movement could cause problems? Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I'm concerned about and, and my wife and collaborator is also concerned about. Um, that's the same person, by the way. Um, it's it, this will raise the profile of of invasive of eating invasive species. It will create more commerce and more tension with respect to invasive species, and that and that really worries me. So, uh, when nobody's doing anything about invasive species, they're spreading. When people are really interested in invasive species and they want them in their backyard so they can eat them, what they're doing is increasing the rate of spread. So, a good example of this is wild boar. Wild boar are a major problem in uh, in Alabama, in Texas, and actually moving up all the way to Michigan now. And wild boar is something that people really enjoy hunting. One of the reasons is because they're a challenge to hunt. They're, they're bright. They're much brighter than hunting deer, deer for instance. Deer, uh, they, they make themselves a little easier to bag. So wild boar, and, and they taste good. People, by the way, they like pork. And, and a lot of people especially like the taste of uh, wild-caught uh, pork. So wild boar, very popular. They're a serious invasive species. They, have, they cause serious problems. They dig up just about everything. They tear down fences, so not just an ecological problem, but a, an economic problem. People don't necessarily like to have them uh, in, in, in their neighborhood, but they do also like to have them around to hunt. So again, a bit of a mixed message. But the point is, there, are, there have been reports recently, um, in, in Michigan in particular, there's an article in the New York Times uh, in the spring or summer about the efforts that Michigan is making to prohibit the, um, the, the uh, personal... Um, personal uh, possession of wild boar and to prohibit uh, moving them, you know, into hunting ranges and things like that. So people are pushing back against this. They're saying, no, 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 we have, we have business interests in this. We have social interests in this because we like hunting the boar and we don't want you to get rid of them. So, so one of the major problems that I see is this sort of both economic and sort of cultural endearment of the species. Once you make it a commodity, once you make it something that people really care about, um, care about, they don't want to get rid of it. And making it something that people care about is the whole point of the eating invaders movement. If you want to get rid of the invasive species, you have to really go after it. You have to hunt a lot of them. And if you're hunting a lot of them, it means you've got a lot of people who really either really want to do it for fun or really want to do it for money. And in either case, they're not going to want to take the last boar and have no more left. And as an aside, it's not as if this is the would be the first time that we've ever seen an invasive species sort of become endeared in our culture. 
uh, economically or culturally. The wild boar is an example in itself because um, the, the Razorbacks are a college football mascot. Uh, in California, eucalyptus is an invasive species. It has some serious problems. It, it, it changes the fire regimes and it, it leads to forest fires. But it is a very popular plant both a landscaping plant and it's actually become part of this uh, eucalyptus school of art. And I'm not sure that's exactly what it's called, but this school of art in California. And and there have been major fights when places like uh, parts of the University of California system are trying to remove this plant from their their campuses. So uh, there is a real problem that you will get uh, really economic and cultural reasons to keep these species around once you make them an important uh, important food product. And I should also just say, um, and maybe you're going to ask this, so I don't want to get ahead of us, but that it's also not likely to work ecologically. So on the one hand, you've got these problems that make it um, make it bad, that make it actually a negative campaign. And on the other hand, you've got these problems that make it, at best, a worthless campaign. Because when you look at boar, again, for instance, a single, a single female boar can have something like 12 piglets in a litter. Um, Asian carp, I, I don't even know the numbers of Asian carp that are spawned each year, but the populations grow naturally. And in order to be successful ecologically, you have to have something that's called additive mortality. So you have to actually be able to kill and eat these things, not necessarily eat them, but you have to be able to kill them and get them out of the population, out of the sort of reproductive sphere uh, at a rate that is greater than their sort of natural mortality. So for the Asian carp, you've got something like a 70% natural mortality rate. They don't, they don't live long in a given year. Uh, they, not, not much of the population lives through a given year. So in order for the eating invaders folks to be successful, they actually have to take and kill more than 70% of the breeding population. And that's extraordinarily difficult to do. Right. Oh, it seems sort of ironic in the sense that, you know, we managed to almost hunt buffalo to extinction, um, you know, completely unintentionally. And yet some of the the factors that make these invasive species so successful make them so hard to hunt and so hard to actually decrease their numbers in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's a very important point that uh, um, that part of the reason that we've done it in the past and probably won't be able to do it again with invasive species, because the reason they become invasive, the traits that make them invasive, just like you said, also make them more robust and more difficult to kill off than something like uh, the buffalo. And of course, the buffalo also, it's a, it's a large mammal. It has a long gestation and, and so forth. So it, it's, its biology allow, makes it more, more difficult to sustain its population, whereas something like a carp doesn't, doesn't have that problem. That obviously is not true for all invasive species. But in general, they do have these traits that, that basically keep the species going strong. Right. So, so it sounds like there's some some significant problems on the on the ecological front. Um, but so, what about some of the regulations? I mean, you mentioned the Lacey Act earlier that prevents the the spread of some of these blacklisted species and some of these species that have um, specific state regulations prohibiting um, you know ownership or transport of them. Um, do those laws also act to interfere with the invasive work? Invasive war movement? They do. Um, they, they, they act to interfere with the, the movement, specifically the movement of the species. Um, so you, you basically got the two types of laws that interfere with this, this invasive war campaign. On the one hand, you've got something like the Lacey Act or the Plant Protection Act, which, which literally prohibits somebody who wants to capture a lot of knotweed or capture a lot of uh, carp. A knotweed, I'm sorry, is a bad example because it's not actually listed by the by the Lacey Act. But let's just use keep using carp as an example. Somebody wants to capture a lot of carp in the in um, 
in the Mississippi River. Well, one thing they're going to have to do, by the way, this is just a fun fact about um, Asian carp. They they jump up and and they're dangerous. So when, when they get disturbed by a motorboat or a, or, a, or a fishing rod, they they jump out of the river like flying fish and they slam into boats and into each other and into fishermen. So they're they're actually a, a sort of a violent, risky <laughs> fish to to go after. But if you have the guts and the tenacity to go after Asian carp, you can grab up hundreds of them, thousands of them, millions of them, if you wish. But um, then you've got to figure out a way to get them legally from one state into another state. And the Lacey Act essentially prohibits that. Uh, there has been a proposal, which I think is really interesting, and this is something I wrote a little bit about, but that McDonald's, I, I want to give credit, I think this was Jackson Lander's proposal, at least I first heard it from him, but the proposal is go to McDonald's and look at the filet fish sandwich. The filet fish sandwich is made, I think, from Alaskan pollock. Uh, Alaskan pollock, as far as I know, isn't in any danger, but it but is a native fish that's part of the systems up in Alaska. Why don't we substitute carp for pollock? We could, nobody would know the difference. This is whitefish chopped up, deep fried, covered in some sort of tartar sauce and cheese between two buns, and it's McDonald's. So, you know, this is not the kind of place where where people are, are noticing the, the species of the fish that they're eating. Um, I, I frankly don't know that there's anywhere that people notice the species of the fish they're eating, but certainly not in that in that state and deep fried. So you could just substitute carp in for all the pollock, and that would be really great. That would help reduce the carp population. Well, one, as I mentioned before about the additive mortality issue, I don't know that it would help reduce the carp population. That's not math that I've done. Um, But also, how do you go about getting all those millions of pounds of carp from from the rivers that they infest into McDonald's's throughout the country or into the processing plants? And the answer is you probably can't because the Lacey Act prohibits the movement of carp. So... That's one strain of regulation of law that, that will just be an enormous hurdle for the invasive war movement. The other strain is actually, and I think this one's pretty interesting, is, is our food safety laws and our, our food sanitation laws. So when you look at something like the um, USDA or the Food and Drug Administration and the types of laws that they administer, they don't necessarily allow people to sell for food just any old thing that can be eaten. So boar, back to boar, is a good example for this. You you can hunt a boar and kill it and kill lots of boar and eat them all uh, on your own as long as your state hunting regulations allow it. But you can't take that boar meat and then sell it commercially or sell it even privately to your neighbor or your friends because hunted wild game is is illegal to sell uh, across state lines and in many cases even within a single state. So hunt all the boar you want, but you're not going to be able to get a big enough market or even if you do get a big enough market, you're not going to be able to fulfill it without this economic piece and current food regulations prohibit us from really engaging in this as an economic activity. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. So um, I guess do you, you know, obviously it seems like there's some some pretty serious legal hurdles here. Um, do you see any kind of a legal workaround, I mean, that's either feasible or that, you know, states have begun to work on or anything to that effect? There are, there are states that are making policy efforts to promote eating invasive species, but by and large, they're not really workarounds. They're more um, small-scale endeavors that um, that don't really have any promise for large-scale invasive vorism or invasivery. They um, they are just 
they, they are just on the first prong of the Invasive War Movement, which is the PR sort of raising awareness prong, not so much the actual ecological population impact prong. So uh, the state of Illinois has been making an effort to reduce carp, uh, or at least raise awareness, I should say, for carp by serving, for instance, carp sliders at uh, the Taste of Chicago event, which is a, a major sort of foodie food festival in Chicago. That's great, and, and it, it raises awareness, but uh, it's certainly not going to happen at a large enough rate to uh, get rid of the carp altogether or even in any in any numbers at all. In Florida, um, there's a campaign that's in, in conjunction with Florida and the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, there's an effort to to convince people to eat lionfish, which is another serious invasive species that's coming up the Atlantic coasts from the Caribbean uh, and from Florida. I, I believe these lionfish were released uh, as, from, as aquarium pets and then put in the waters and they're thriving. And they taste good. And, and Bun Lai serves them at Mia's Sushi. Um, but, but it's not a. It's again, it's not a legal workaround. It's a very small scale campaign, and it, it doesn't necessarily reach some of the thresholds, uh, the interstate thresholds that are required to really trigger the federal laws. Okay, so I mean, it sounds like in in some, I mean, it, it sounds like there's some definite problems with the invasive war movement, but at the same time, it's been really successful in raising awareness so far. Um, so, you know, I guess in in conclusion, do you think that? this is something that we should be pursuing, um, you know, maybe just for its symbolism, or do you think we should sort of be working on other other issues or other aspects of controlling invasive species? I think we should be working on other aspects of controlling invasive species. I think there have been absolute benefits to this, and I don't think there's been any major uh, problems to identify with this particular invasive war movement. So first I'll address the fact that I think we should... Um, we should be working on other things. As I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, I think that prevention is, is the thing we really need to focus on. We need to um, develop clever, creative means to prevent invasive species from coming into this, this country or anywhere to be mo moved around the globe in general. We need to prevent that from happening. Um, I, let me just say, since I said this country, there are folks who don't think invasive species are a problem at all. And part of their uh, argument is that it's really a sort of... Um, it's a it's a fear of uh, it's a fear of foreigners. It's an anti-immigration sort of thing. I want to be clear. I don't. That's not the issue. Invasive species are bad for for um, ecosystems across the globe. So I'm not just worried about having Japanese knotweed or Asian carp uh, coming into the U.S. I'm worried about U.S. plants ending up over there too. So this is not a you know some sort of colonial uh, remnant or anything like that. Um, so I I think that figuring out ways to prevent the spread and introduction of invasive species is the way the place we have to start. Now, with that said, I do think the invasive species movement, the invasive species, the invasive species eating movement, has been effective at raising awareness for the for the issue. And I don't think we've seen any major problems uh, from the plants and animals that they are particularly championing that we eat. I don't think Bun Lai's restaurant has caused the spread of lionfish or some of the other uh, burdock or knotweed, or the other invasive species that he he serves. However, that doesn't mean that the idea of eating invaders in a more general sense hasn't caused problems. It's really important to, to remember that a lot of these invasive species arrived in this country in the first place because they were brought here as a food source. Boar is one of them. So did the, did the invasive or movement cause boar? No, but they're here because people wanted to eat them in the first place. We weren't successful the last time we tried to eat them. I don't think we'll be successful this time, and we've already seen that it can cause a problem. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us and uh, tell us a lot about invasive species. This has been really useful and informative. Um, so thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you.